Uh, you know, so many just great things going on. I was just talking with Kathy Reynolds right before we came in, and you guys may not realize this, but Rudy and Evelyn just doing such a wonderful job with our Hispanic ministry. 39 people in our adult language classes today. Now, that doesn't include folks that are in children and youth. I mean, that, that's just for context, that is a huge number. Uh, they are about to birth another class working on that. I mean, just good things and just excited for what God's doing in our, in our Spanish language speaking classes. That's just an answer to prayer that we're even able to be able to do something like that. And uh, I was telling our deacons, I mentioned this morning that Jimmy and I had uh, gone out uh, with some folks from ESL and shared Christ with them this week. And you know, I was just reminded that you Christians don't ask very good questions. You just don't. You've been at this so long, you just accept it all, right? You know, I do. When we were out, I was glad Jimmy was there because one of the guys said, so who made God? And I said, Jimmy, what do you think about that? <laughs> he did pretty good too. You guys say that you're monotheistic, but how do you believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Jimmy, what do you think about that? By the end of the night, I just was pointing to Jimmy. He just did it all, and it was just great. You know, It's good to be around people that are asking you questions like that, isn't it? It's good to be able to share Christ with folks like that. It was a, it was a great opportunity that we had. And um, as we kind of get into this series in 1 John, uh, I think we could title this entire series that you may know. That you may know. Uh, and tonight we're going to do an introductory sermon really to the book of First John. I think the idea of knowing something is an amazing feeling. There's something that comes when you absolutely are rock solid about your belief in whatever that makes it amazing. In 1999, there was a show that was sweeping across America and it was taking us by storm. It was called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You may remember this show. They ask you a bunch of questions, and you had some lifelines and some different things like that. But there will never be a contestant quite like John Carpenter. John Carpenter had made it all the way through to the final question without using any of his lifelines. And that night, as Regis asked him this question, who appeared as a former president on the show Laugh-In? And they named four presidents. He said, I think I'd like to use one of my lifelines. I'm going to phone a friend. Well, who are you going to phone? I'd like to phone my dad. And his dad answered the phone and he said, Dad, I'm on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. They've asked me a question, but that's not why I called. I don't need any help. I just called to tell you I want a million dollars. Because the answer is Richard Nixon, Dad, and I'm a winner. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? When you know, right? When you can sit back and you know something, it's a game changer for you. I wonder what it would be like to be so certain of something that you don't have to worry about it at all. Maybe like an athletic competition. When the game's on the line and you know that your player is good enough that if the ball gets in his or her hands, the game is going to be over. I mean, there's a certain confidence in knowing that you're better than your opponent, that your team is better, that you're ready to go, that as you start the competition, there's no one that's going to be able to keep up with you. 
It must be a good feeling to go to school and know that you have a test and that you know everything about it. I wouldn't know what that feels like. But I can imagine that you've studied the material so well and, and everything's ready to go that when you walk in, the test is no problem. I once had a teacher tell me that I shouldn't be worried about tests because it's just an opportunity for me to show what I already know. I didn't feel better about that. But sometimes, right, you know the material backwards and forwards that when you show up, it's just going to be so easy. It must be an amazing feeling to know that your salvation is secure. Because when your salvation is secure, that's a game changer. And that's one of the great themes of this book. It was written by the same John who gives us the Gospel of John and also the book of Revelation. And he's writing to encourage his readers, the church, with a reminder of this great assurance that is in Christ Jesus. And it's ours. It's ours to hold on to, that we can be assured that knowing Christ is the game changer. Maybe the central verse of this book is in chapter 5, if you want to turn there. Chapter 5 and verse 13. Because as he begins to talk to his, his listeners, as he's writing to these people, he wants them to understand something that is so fundamental to his faith, he feels like it should be transferable to theirs. And he writes like this in chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. That you may know. Years ago, I was in a class with a professor who just simply said, salvation isn't a hope so kind of thing. If someone asks you if you know Jesus Christ, and you say, well, I hope so. You don't know Christ. Because in knowing Christ, there's a certainty there. It's like if someone were to say, do you know Pastor Kirk? I don't have to say, I hope so. I know him or I don't, right? I mean, it's one of those things. It becomes concrete in your life that you either know it or you don't. Many people have approached God with an inquisitive nature and they've wondered how they can please God. This would certainly explain the myriads of idol worshipers that, are, are, that exist in this world today. They've created idols for the sun, the moon, the stars, living creatures, the sea. Everything that you can sense or touch can become an idol in your life as you seek to please a God you can't understand. They even create myths about this. But John's writing from a very different place. It's not like he's saying, I know something you don't know. He's not holding all the keys saying, I, I know something you don't know. He's saying, we know this. These are some things that we know. And he wants us to understand everything that he's saying because what we will see is that if we make a good study of this book, some things will take place in our lives. Those of us who have doubts about our salvation will have those doubts either confirmed that we're not in Christ or that we are in Christ. That's what's so great about the book of 1 John. It gets rid of the doubting uh, Christian. It removes it because he's going to give us some evidences of these things. But it also does something else. It helps those of us who are new to the faith so that we can find assurance in our faith. When we were learning how to do small groups outside of church here with the Timothy Initiative, you, you were here a couple of weeks ago and we had Pastor Solomon uh, that was here. And Solomon is one of the TTI church planters. One of the things that, that they teach us in TTI 
is that as soon as someone gets saved, we go right to the book of 1 John and we start teaching on the assurance of salvation. Why? Because God didn't design salvation to be something that we hold on to. He talks about all the time, Jesus Christ is holding us. And you've heard the illustrations, right, about when a child's walking across the parking lot and holding the hand of a mother or a father, who's really holding the hand, right? John's going to deal with that for us. But for those of us who have been in Christ for a long time, serving the Lord, we'll find strength in this book to live victoriously over a life that is always uncertain. The only certain day you had in your life was yesterday. It's no, no chance of certainty as we go forward. We, we don't know what tomorrow holds. But knowing who you are is an empowering thing for your life. You can imagine, can't you, just how difficult it would be to not know where you came from or any of your background. It would just be a very difficult thing, wouldn't it? You, you would constantly be asking questions about, why am I the way that I am? Is this some kind of trait that I was given from parents that I may not know or, or may not fully understand? Just knowing this small bit of information is game-changing for your life, isn't it? Knowing about who your parents are, that, that's a game-changer. Knowing where your hometown is, where you come from, it's a game-changer. And as we grow, there's something that's certainly incredible to me about a person who knows who they are. It changes things, doesn't it? I mean, we, we, we think that that's something that only teenagers deal with, but adults are dealing with it too. There's many adults, senior adults, young adults, median-aged adults in our church who have no concept of really who they are. When you find out who you are in Christ and you become confident in that, certain things don't bother you anymore. These are my strengths. These are my limitations. It's an empowering thing to be around a person like that, isn't it? Who can just look at you? It's the kind of person that when they go to their closet, they're never worried about what they're wearing. They put it on and they just wear it, right? They understand who they are. That They're confident in who they are. And when we talk about these things, all of a sudden, we're going to understand who we are in Christ. And it's not as if we put on clothes. We put on Christ. And there's a confidence there. John wants us to see that assurance so that we can face life with this strength and empowerment. As I was preparing this message this week, I, I got to thinking about what a daunting task it is to live in 2019 as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it really is. It's a daunting task for me to tell you with a straight face that you should walk out of here and change the world. That, that's a, that seems like a, an overwhelming task sometimes. But as I was preparing the message this week and looking back at newer commentaries and older commentaries, it's funny. They all said the same thing. It's a daunting task to walk out of your church and live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we think that that just happens now. It's always been that way. I think sometimes that I've grown up a, a little bit naive uh, in the way that I grew up. I, I grew up in a neighborhood where I didn't know anybody that was unaffiliated with a church. At least that's how I remember it, because that's what we do. We put these things on called rose-colored glasses, and everything was better 20 years ago. Everything. Carburetors were better than fuel injection. I mean, everything was better, right? I mean, you just you forget about these things, don't you? And it's this idea that everything was easier for the generations that came before us. It had to have been easier, but that's certainly not the case. 
For years people have been writing notes on this small book and they've pointed to the fact that the times were perilous and John points to that fact as well. When he wrote this book, the times were perilous. The apostles were being uh, martyred one by one. He's going to be the last living remaining apostle. I mean, it was a, a difficult time. We shouldn't be surprised that this world opposes the things of God. And he writes this book to tell us that that's how it's going to be. And yet he says some remarkable things about that. He tells us that we should live in the face of that world in a different way. With joy and hope and love and assurance. He tells us that there's a ruler in this present world. And he rules in darkness. And as long as he's allowed to rule, this world will continue to oppose the things of God. It's funny. When you think about it like that, 1 John 5.13 makes sense, doesn't it? Look at that. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Again, that you may know, that you may know. Knowing you have eternal life is a game changer. Because that knowledge makes living in the present world very different. When I know that I have eternal life, it reminds me that if I possess eternal life, my home must not be here on this earth. Because this life is finite. This life has a beginning and an ending point. But eternal life, if it is truly mine to possess, means that there's a life that's going to take hold of me when I'm not living here. There's something in the future. Most of us have a hard time seeing that, don't we? We really see the temporal really quite well. We have a very hard time seeing the eternal nature of things. But if we have eternal life, we're looking towards something else. We're looking to something that will last far beyond the meager years of our lives. Because eternity is waiting for us, we should be living to that end. If you thought about eternity more often, it would have to change some things in your home, wouldn't it? If you thought about eternity more often, it would change what you did in your morning routine. Because, you know, your morning routine might not consist of seeing what was in the news, first off. It might not consist of seeing what had happened overnight while you slept in social media. It might consist of meeting with the Lord because you were going to spend eternity with him, so why not get started now on knowing him? Since he has eternity in mind, you might start with the eternal purposes of your life first, so it would change some things in your home. Your family would see you interacting with the scripture in a different way, wouldn't it? It might change your mealtimes because maybe at mealtime you would have a little bit of, uh, of kind of a conscious effort towards having family devotions so that your kids and your grandkids would be able to see you living out your faith because that's what really mattered. If you thought about eternity... It might change your financial goals because the temporal certainly wouldn't be valued as much. Right now, if you think about that, that's a problem in the church across the world, isn't it? We only think about our temporal goals. It would cause us to sacrifice financially to make sure the word of God was being spread around the world. That wouldn't be such a great sacrifice. It would be a labor of love for us if we thought about eternity. If we thought about eternity, it would change our calendars. For most of us, this is really where the rubber meets the road. It gets incredibly tough, doesn't it? Our calendars become almost like sacred shrines for us. We don't want anything to encroach upon it. When we talk about our, our calendars, we talk about family time and time off and time away, and we want free time to be truly free, but it takes time to cultivate relationships with people who are lost. And that doesn't happen 
really quickly, does it? It doesn't happen with just a, a quick little chat in the driveway. It, it takes time to be intentional with these things. And you have to carve out time and say no to other things so that you can say yes to some things that are really important if you're living with eternity in mind. I think an eternal view of that makes what we're talking about not just a convenience type of thing but a priority. Knowing you have eternal life is also something that stops you from wasting time. You know, when you're constantly worried about whether or not you're saved, you have a monumental time problem on your hands. You're wasting it. Well, it's one of the greatest distractors of the enemy. It's a funny thing. For many, many years of my life, that was a time waster. A time waster. Could you know that you're saved? I don't hear nearly as much about this now as I used to. It used to be people talked a lot about losing your salvation. I think now we've gone to a place where the pendulum has swung to the other side of the thing where it's just like everybody's saved. I went to church once. I'm saved too. This is great. You can live however you want to and, and be saved. God loves you. Just go on with it, man. But for some of us, this was a real issue. And we, we're going to see from this book that it's not based, our salvation isn't based on things like good works. The idea that God keeps an eternal scorecard. And hopefully, your good works overtake your bad works. I don't know why I had done this in this commentary I picked up, but in this commentary that I picked up to study for this message earlier in the week, as I was thumbing through it, there were some things stuffed in the commentary. Again, I don't know why it was in there. One was the first Father's Day card that my wife ever gave me. Don't know why it was in there. It was very nice. Thank you, by the way. It was a good reminder. But there was also a golf scorecard in there. <laughs> I mean, again, really. Where my father and Pastor Phil Jones and Mark Leith and I had played golf and I had shot an 84. And I guess I kept that because I've never been close to that since. Aren't you glad that life's not like a golf scorecard? That's not how it works, is it? God's not keeping score of things so that if your good works overwhelm your bad works, then you're good. We're not saved because we had an experience. We stop basing our salvation on whether or not we've had an experience. Well, I went to this place one time, and it was this great experience, and the worship was great, and the speaker was great, and I was just so overwhelmed emotionally. He's going to give us some concrete things. We're not saved based on our pedigree. Who your parents were doesn't matter in heaven. That can be good or bad. Maybe you had parents that laid a great foundation of knowing Christ. Good for you. Or maybe you didn't. It's okay. Salvation doesn't depend on that. It doesn't depend on whether or not you've been baptized. I know that sounds funny to say in a Baptist church. But that's the truth of the scripture, isn't it? Baptism is something that's really important as your next step in following Jesus. But it's not about salvation. It's about obedience. Big difference, isn't it? 
the idea of knowing will come again is a test that gives us evidence to our salvation. Look at chapter 2 and verse 3. He says this word again. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. He's saying something about this that once we have become those who are in Christ, keeping the commands becomes not a chore. It becomes something that we long to do, right? It becomes something that we work at doing. That's a difference, isn't it? We just said a minute ago we're not saved by our scorecard. This is something that happens and emanates only from the inside out. It's not from the outside in. It's not a behavior modification thing. But he's going to say to us, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. We'll talk about that. He'll also talk to us about knowing and discerning the spirit of God's work in our lives. This seems like it could be very tricky for us, and yet he simply says we're going to know the spirit because the spirit's going to give us some evidence. Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. As he says, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that he is coming and now is already in the world. Well, when you know that, it changes tricky situations and simplifies them, doesn't it? How can I know if God is in this movement? Well, what do they say about Jesus? Is he one way? Is he the son of God? Did he come in the flesh? You say, well, that's not really that important, isn't it? Sure it is. People for years have been denying that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And yet, he says, if they say that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, not from God. It boils these things down for us and lets us test the spiritual world. So as we begin to understand all of these things, one of the things that starts to happen is that you have to engage your brain. Knowing requires thinking. Knowing requires you doing some heavy work, some, some mental exercises there. The, the idea of stretching a little bit and asking your brain to engage in this, not, not just to look at it and say, oh, it's good that Easter's coming, that Jesus rose from the dead. And why did he rose, rise from the dead? Why is it that we confess that Jesus was fully God, fully man? Why is it essential that we know these things? Well, because when you start to know these things and you're building the foundation of what you know, all of a sudden you find things like assurance when you know them. In a very roundabout way, he'll also finish what he started in the very first chapter of the book. Would you look at verse 4 of chapter 1? He said, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And there's something here that needs to be made known in your life and the knowledge of all these things he's writing is somehow going to equal out complete joy. It's a funny thing. I've written these things so that you can know this, but then he starts by saying, I really want you to have this joy. As we read this book, it seems like it does this a lot. He hits a topic, 
comes back. Hits a topic, comes back. He's not writing like the Apostle Paul is, but what he's writing is very important for us to see, that when we understand all of these things, joy comes out. I needed that reminder this week. I don't know if you did, but joy is something that we just need to be reminded of. It's a good thing for us to be reminded of that joy is not based upon movable circumstances like whether or not your team does well in the tournament tonight. Go Liberty. It's not even based upon whether or not life is treating you fairly. The Apostle Paul endured terrible circumstances, didn't he? Shipwrecked, beaten, starved, hungry, stoned. Like we forget sometimes that this happened, right? They stoned the Apostle Paul and dragged him outside the city to leave him for dead. Right? And yet, okay, somebody needs to turn off the phone back there. You can check your bracket later. Unless Duke won. Did Duke win? All right. Do you think that Paul endured joy everywhere that he went? Maybe if it was based on movable circumstances like whether or not you're being stoned to death. Maybe not. And yet he talks about joy. In the midst of the circumstances that he was living in that were terrible. He's imprisoned at the end of his life. He's not going to get out of prison. He's going to be executed. And he writes what many people have called the letter of joy. The book of Philippians. What kind of man can do that? What kind of person can watch the world falling down around them and say, I'm still going to have joy? And let's talk about joy and let's make it right. Joseph found joy in the circumstances of his life that were overwhelming. At every turn, Joseph could have said, This isn't worth it anymore. Following God isn't worth it, it hasn't gotten me anywhere. But joy wasn't based on movable circumstances. Our own Savior. The cross was described as something to be endured. Did Jesus feel every whip, every lash, every punch, every thorn? Only if he was fully God, and John says that he was. And yet, we learn about Jesus that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. The joy. John says that our joy can actually be complete. And that means that it can actually be filled up to the max. It comes to an end. There, there's no more that you have any room for it. I don't know if your life feels that way tonight, but I'll be honest with you, mine feels like it's got a lot more room for joy. I haven't, I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't gotten to the place where I can look at the Lord and say, my joy is like to hear. It's, it's an 11. There's no more room for joy in my life. Give it to somebody else. Why is that? Well, it could be that my joy isn't complete if I'm living in the moment of movable circumstances. But with the knowledge of Jesus Christ in our lives, 
We can be confident in that knowledge, and that knowledge and that assurance gives us joy. Joy to face an uncertain future. Joy to face a world that seems arrayed against us. Joy to face all kinds of things that the enemy might have for us. I can face that with joy, and I can let my life be filled with it. John felt like when we understood this, we would have full joy. Because what would happen is, it wouldn't matter where you vacationed lately. That wouldn't matter at all. It wouldn't matter if you'd been able to buy the car that you wanted to. Wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter if your health was failing or if it was great. It wouldn't matter if if you had gotten a job that you really wanted or the promotion you felt like you deserved. None of those things were based on joy. And John felt like if we really understood the kind of relationships that were being offered to us, because there's this knowledge of Jesus Christ that he wants us to have, but he also wants us to have a fellowship with believers around us, and he's going to show us in the book that when those things happen, our joy just starts to fill up. And we'll ultimately see how joy comes from knowing God and fellowshipping with people who are in Christ. I was trying to explain that to somebody this week. It's a hard thing, to underst- I guess, to understand if you're not a believer. Uh, I don't love traveling. That's not really a big secret. But one of the neat things that happens when you go somewhere overseas and you meet someone who doesn't speak your language and you don't speak their language, but you have a commonality of Christ is there's an instantaneous connection. I mean, it's just like this. Instantaneous. Why is that? Joy. It's the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. The knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in their life. And when those two things meet, all of a sudden, there's joy and there's a connection. And as John looked out at the world around him, he saw the perils that were awaiting and he found joy. And he wants us to have joy joy movable circumstances I was reminded this week about how movable circumstances really are pitiful when it comes to trying to make you happy or joyous they just don't measure up I was uh, I don't know just it was just one of those days I, I woke up Thursday morning and I, I, I just would call it like one of those days you wake up in a funk I didn't sleep really well. You know, I don't know if you ever have nights like that or anything. I mean, you just didn't sleep well. I go to sleep like a champ. I mean, like a champ. But sometimes come two or three in the morning, it's like, could I? I wasn't worried about anything. There wasn't anything that was just eating at me. I mean, it was nothing like that. I was just awake. I finally went back to sleep, and when I got up, I was just, I was just kind of, ugh. And I grabbed my devotional that morning and started reading it. The house was quiet, and it was a a good time to have a little bit of time with the Lord. And I was just reminded from the book of Jeremiah that when we really place our faith and our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we put our eyes and set our eyes on things that don't move, see, God doesn't move. I'm the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Yesterday, today, and forever. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That's like saying the A to the Z in our alphabet. The beginning and the end, he says. When you place your eyes on things that don't move, it's amazing what starts to happen. And I just realized that one of the things that that happens to us sometimes is that we feel like we deserve a pity party. Do you ever feel that way? This is where you nod your head yes. Because you're lying if you're saying you don't. You know you do. I mean, just once in a while, you just feel like you deserve a little pity party. 
Can I tell you, I was just convicted by that because in my devotional, I got up, I was ready to have a little pity party. I mean, I really was. And the author, you know what he started with? God doesn't care about your pity party. Shut that book. You'll find somebody else. I mean, but what begins to happen, isn't it? You've experienced this. I read that and I started praying through the morning's prayer list and just going through those things and praying for people in our church right now and praying that God would do some things in my heart and praying that that God would change some attitudes I was struggling with and just all those things. And all of a sudden what starts to happen, I don't know how it happens, but when you take your eyes off of this and you put your eyes up on the thing that is unmovable, the only thing that is certain is the Lord. And when you put your eyes there, all of a sudden joy comes back. Always. It's really hard to remain in the presence of the Lord and not find joy. Your circumstances may not have changed. Your your circumstances may still be really crummy. Right? But joy can be complete even in those circumstances. I hope over the next few weeks, and we'll take the summer break and then we'll come back and continue this study, I hope that what comes out of it for you and for me is that we're assured of whose we are and that knowing who we are becomes a freeing thing. And that we become so full of joy in understanding who we are in Christ that we can say at some point along this journey, that's it, I got it. My joy is complete. It's filled. No need for any more, Lord. You can give it to somebody else who needs it today because I am filled to the brim. I've got it. That's what he wants us to see. Next week we'll see about how Jesus was from the beginning and John wants us to see that and how that makes our joy complete. I want you to bow with me in prayer. Could it be tonight that your joy is lacking or that you've been caught in the monumental wasting of time worrying about your salvation if those two things might be true I'm going to ask you to do something I'm going to ask you to slip your hand up in the air if you need me to pray for you for joy tonight would you just do that nobody's looking around this is just us yep I see that anybody else yes yes anybody else yep who else for joy and I'm not going to ask you to slip your hand up but I am going to ask you to do something else if you've been struggling with your salvation that is not something that God wants you to struggle with that's something that you can get nailed down tonight and it won't be because I have something clever to say to you. It's just the scripture. And I want to encourage you that after the service, just come down, find me, take me by the hand. Let's just sit down and talk for a second and make certain that you know you're saved. Because that's one of the biggest tools of the enemy to get you to waste time. Father, As we close out tonight, we pray for those who are 
needing joy in their lives. God, that you would fill it up. Complete it in their lives. Complete it in my life. And that in knowing you, and knowing whose we are, that our joy would be made complete. And Father, for the one who doesn't have assurance of their own salvation tonight, Father, that you would tonight release them from that worry so that they would either know that they're saved or know that they need to trust you as Lord and Savior. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.